Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol CFLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. On this episode of the Australian Business Podcast, I'm chatting to Matt Vitali, the co-founder of Birchall, one of Australia's biggest and best crowdfunding platforms. If you're new to crowdfunding, have no fear, we talk about that. In this episode, we talk about how to raise money from investors. Specifically, how a business can get money from investors they don't know and use that money to fuel the growth of their business. This is a fantastic episode because Matt is in a unique position whereby he understands how to start a business, having co-founded Birchall himself, but also seeing hundreds of other business owners try and do the same and try and raise capital and get outside investment. One of the best pieces of advice that you can get as a small business owner is to treat your business as if it was being sold tomorrow. That means cleaning up your financials, having a clear business strategy, and understanding all of the costs and inputs into your business. Because if you think about it, if you're optimizing your business all the time, you're going to extract the maximum amount of profits and make better decisions. So even though this episode may not be for you in that you may not be ready to sell part or all of your business. This is actually a fantastic episode just to think about what it takes to be successful. I think this episode will be especially insightful for business owners that have scaled just beyond that kind of startup phase. While Matt says that many businesses of all shapes and sizes can use crowdfunding, I think it's especially interesting for businesses that are probably, you know, in that stage where they have a few million dollars of revenue. Now, it's important to understand we straddle the two different types of people that would use the virtual platform, the investors who invest in private businesses, but also the the business owners who want to sell some of their business and fuel their growth. When it comes to the investing side, it's important that you understand the risks. So in the show notes, there is a section on crowdfunding and some of the risks involved. Remember that when you invest in a small private company, oftentimes you can't easily sell the shares. And many of the businesses are small and kind of emerging. So there's a heightened risk. Don't be confusing private company investing with investing in companies on the stock exchange where you can typically buy and sell pretty quickly and at a 
pretty fair price based on market prices. This is a fantastic episode and I'm thrilled to have Matt on the show to tell us a bit about Birchall, his journey, crowdfunding, and some of the lessons learned, having raised over $100 million for small business owners. I hope you enjoy this episode on the Australian Business Podcast featuring Matt Vitale of Birchall. Matt, thanks for taking some time to join me on the Australian Business Podcast, Ben. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to talk about funding, teams, uh, what you've learned from, I think, you know, I think it's over 100, I could be wrong here, Matt, over $130 million, $140 million raised through the virtual platform. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Across uh, over 160 successful offers since we launched. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so many companies have come your way. So, we're going to talk about what you've learned from speaking with those business people and those founders and so on and so forth. But then also, just your legal background too is quite interesting because I think you're obviously the right man for the job in terms of virtual. You know, you have that kind of knowledge of the the legal infrastructure that's in place to protect investors and companies as well, uh, which is really interesting. So we'll be covering all of that, but maybe just to kick things off, Matt, maybe you can tell me a little bit about yourself. Like what led you to think before virtual, like what led you down this path initially? Oh, look, I, I think like many founders and business owners, um, there's always this, itch that needs to be scratched to, you know, start things, um, solve problems. Uh, I, you know, I've always been thinking about, um, yeah, starting businesses. Uh, For me, it's a creative outlet. Um, And yes, I did do a law degree. And um, I think, you know, it's a challenge for a lot of lawyers uh, being kind of typecast or people seeing you as, as one dimensional, that you know, you're devoid of any creative, um, you know, elements uh, to your personality and, and nothing could be further from the truth in my experience and certainly in my circumstance. Um, but I've always looked at starting things and, um, uh, you know, being entrepreneurial as, as my creative outlet and how I kind of express myself and, um, yeah, I think I've become uh, a lot more comfortable with that as part of my identity as I've gotten older and, you know, I feel I'm at a stage where I've, I've found my purpose and I feel absolutely fulfilled in what I'm doing uh, professionally. I noticed that you spent a bit of time um, with some banks as well um, and obviously you have that legal grounding. So uh, being in those roles, it seemed like, now this is just me, Matt, from a distance, right? It seemed like you were entrepreneurial before virtual it seemed like you wanted to do something like you wanted as you said to be creative so um i guess do you think like this is a very quick question do you think that some people are born that way or do you think there's like do you think there's something to that like i I see that in you right i see it in a bunch of investors that i come across as well yeah look absolutely i've accepted that this is um uh, this this is me, this is who I am, this kind of need to, you know, start things and do things. And uh, in a sense, it, it's a hard road. It can be, um, uh, you know, really rewarding um, at times and really taxing at other times. And um, they're, they're in those taxing times, I do wonder if I would have been kind of content with a more stable life and, you know, seeing my job as, as, as just that and, you know, finding my kind of fulfilment and, you know, creativity outside of work, which is the way that other people manage it. But 
Um, for me, and I think for many other uh, founders and business owners, um, this separation of work and life often is, is just not possible. And, um, you know, I've, I've come to accept that. And uh, I think, you know, my family has come to accept that about me as well, as hard as it's been. But um, I tried doing it the other way. Uh, you know, I became a lawyer and worked in private practice and kind of did that thing. And, um, you know, I was... I was un unfulfilled, I guess. And this, this was a thing like working with clients and um, seeing them, you know, go off to execute the things and build things um, kind of left me a bit, you know, empty and a bit jealous. And uh, I think I kind of realized that, yeah, that, that in many ways, that was why I became a lawyer. I have uh, always been interested in business. Um, and I think after school, you know, getting out and starting things, you know, I started a, a couple of things that didn't go very well at all and realised how, how little I knew, how deficient I was in terms of my skill set and my knowledge and um, decided to become a lawyer, I think, to um, make myself a, a more valuable business person or better at business. And in doing that, I suppose, got kind of wrapped up in, you know, getting good marks so you can get a job at a law firm and then getting into a law firm and, and, you know, doing all of the things that you need to do as a young lawyer to get promoted and get the good work and all of these things. Um, and I, you know, I forgot, I suppose, why I'd become a lawyer in the first place. Um, and then kind of had this realization, like actually, no, my, my life is outside of the law. Um, but I'm, I'm like being a lawyer. Um, I mean, you're always a lawyer, and it, it teaches you how to think about problems, not taking things for granted. You know, always kind of getting to the the root of an issue and understanding why things are the way they are. Um, you know, I think it's this goal of like actually understanding uh, uh, problems, and um, that training is something that is extremely useful. Uh, in the role that I'm performing now, uh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a part of me and, um, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world. Can I ask a personal question, Matt? How old were you when Virtual was formed? Uh, I think I was probably 36. Yeah, right. So, obviously, coming from a legal background, like you work some, for some really prestigious places, like you work for some really interesting firms and what have you. And being 36, I feel like um, that would have been a pretty, um, you know, crucial time in your career in terms of I could continue to earn all this money and go down this path or I could take the risk and pursue this thing that I'm really passionate about. Um, we'll get to virtual in just a second. Sorry, I know that's, a, that's most of the conversation, but um, I'm really interested to know how did you make that decision internally that this was the right choice for me yeah i i, I think it's that fulfillment point that uh, i was making before was that um you know i didn't feel that i could ascend the ranks in private practice because to do that i think you really need to be passionate about uh, i mean look to, to to master anything um you need to make some sacrifice and uh, compromise and to really 
you know, invest the time and effort um, and energy involved in becoming really good at something. And I think I had an aptitude as a lawyer, but in terms of, uh, you know, the things that I knew would be required of me to, you know, ascend to the apex of that environment and be a partner, um, I, I couldn't see myself doing it. And uh, I knew that I wanted something else. So, it wasn't really a decision, I suppose. Like it was, you know, absolutely, it was risk. Um, but uh, risk coupled with the, the chance of uh, professional fulfilment, um, which was mm -hmm. what I was taking, uh, it was a pretty easy decision for me in the end, in spite of the risk. That's really, really interesting to hear you say that because a lot of people do view it as it's like all or nothing. But I guess with you too, like you knew that, if you took this risk, you still were a lawyer. You could still go and do that if you wanted to. Like that, you could resume regular programming. Um, in the meantime, you get the chance to scratch this itch. I was a bit younger, Matt, uh, when I when I started the business, and uh, for me, I kind of assessed it as I don't have kids yet, um, I don't have a mortgage yet. And I could have bought a house, to be frank, but I decided that no, I'm going to take that money and start a business because I think businesses create value. Um, not to say that housing doesn't, maybe just not as much value. And so for me, it was kind of like, I did view it as almost like an all or nothing. Like as in all of this is like, I need to make this decision to do it now because I probably won't have it as easy. I could still do it later. But for me, um, it was probably better to do it sooner rather than later. But hey, mate, I, I know like we've got a lot to get through. So let's talk now a bit about virtual. If I could just start with some real quick questions. I noticed on the website that... Um, if someone wanted to invest in a private company through your platform, is it true that they could do it with as little as 50 bucks? And I guess the question after that is like, what's the average investment into one of these companies? Um, great questions. The, the average investment is probably around $1,500. Um, okay. And it's absolutely true uh, that it's possible to invest in some offers for as little, little as $50. The most common minimum parcel size is $250, okay. um, but we'll allow companies to set a minimum parcel size as low as $50. So, yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, right. And how, you mentioned it before. How many companies have raised funding through the platform? Uh, over 160 successful campaigns is actually, there's probably more than that, but uh, I'm just, I, I should have counted uh, before <laughs> I hopped on the call, but it's definitely over 160. Yeah, great. Okay, so... Now let's talk about, like, I feel like this is going to be an interesting conversation for a lot of people that are watching and listening, um, whether they're an investor like myself or whether they're a business owner also like myself or whether they do both like myself, um, just people in general that are interested in businesses because we just spoke off air that the, the world of business doesn't stop at the stock exchange, right? This is where we tend to operate, like the Rask brand tends to do most of its work in that space, but increasingly... Um, we're seeing like more opportunities, more businesses, more founders in staying in the private company space for a lot longer, whether that's through control of their enterprise, whether it's through just keeping a low profile and get and sticking to business. I think there's a lot to be said for that. But, you know, this, the, the other reason that this, this conversation is interesting is like you started a business, so you know what it's like, right? Yep. So can you tell me what was involved in setting about researching for virtual and then starting the business and some of those early days like stories that you might have that can help set the scene for the questions that i've got uh, lined up afterward so the, the origin story for yeah. virtual yeah. um so 
Look, equity crowdfunding is, although relatively new to Australia, um, as a concept has, has been around um, in, in its most recent iteration. Uh, you know, there's kind of some academic debates about, um, uh, you know, examples about the, the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty being crowdfunded and, and things like that. And, um, and Adam Atchek talks about, you know, the uh, joint stock companies, you know, that, um, as, as the earliest crowdfunded businesses. But the most recent iteration was probably in the wake of the GFC. So in the UK, um, like, you know, most economies in the Northern Hemisphere, um, traditional sources of funding really dried up for early stage businesses. And, um you know, a lot said about the uh, the connection between craft beer and equity crowdfunding. And, you know, there's lots of craft breweries that have raised uh, on our platform. And, you know, people kind of scratch their heads and wonder why. And um, part of the reason is one of the most high profile early examples of the crowdfund business was um, for a company called Brewdog, which is a Scottish craft brewer. And um, this was before crowdfunding platforms existed they uh, were unable to raise capital for the, you know, the kit and equipment they needed to expand their brewery. Um, uh, you know, banks weren't coming to the party, wake of the GFC, really hard. Um, so they had this bright idea to uh, raise capital from their most passionate customers and fans. And, um, you know, I, I'm probably getting the figures wrong, but it was something like a million pounds from around a, a thousand of their most passionate customers and fans and in order to do it they needed to get uh some exemptions from the regulators in the uk to allow uh an online offer of securities um whether or not the crowdfunding platforms that you know ultimately uh were founded were inspired by that or you know they were kind of tackling a similar issue but around the same time crowdcube and cedars which are the two dominant platforms in the uk uh started op operating and um there was a real need at the time because early stage capital uh was impossible and um you know people are entrepreneurial. There will always be a subset of people out there with that itch to scratch to start things. And these platforms came and kind of filled that void and enabled uh, founders to connect with an audience of willing investors to back um, what, what were, you know, very risky opportunities at the earliest stage. Um, now, Australia didn't really have the the need or the impetus to put something um, in place. Uh, you know, UK regulators started building laws and regulatory frameworks around this, um, but we fared pretty well after the GFC. So, you know, this impetus to kind of change, uh, you know, our, our regulation of, of securities offers didn't really exist in the same way. Um, but the Australian government and others were still paying attention. And I was, um, you know, a young lawyer, um, looking at what was happening overseas and um, uh, the Corporations and Markets Advisory Committee put out a discussion paper asking for industry feedback on whether Australia should have something similar. And I, I wrote a paper personally in a, in a personal capacity and, and got chatting as a result to um, Alan Crabb, who's my co-founder in Birchall, um, who had co-founded Possible, which is a reward crowdfunding platform you know, we both put papers in and became aware of each other um, and got talking over several years about creating an equity crowdfunding platform. 
Now that was 2013. The legislation uh, that has become Australia's crowdsource funding regime wasn't passed until 2017. So, you know, it took some time for everyone to get comfortable with this as a concept. And there were some pretty fundamental changes to corporate law that were involved. Um, so that, in addition to, you know, you might remember, um, it was a pretty tumultuous time in Australian politics that, you know, 2013 to 2017 period. So mm. um, kind of explains why, why, why it took so long. Mm. So how did, so you obviously, both of you had the opportunity to meet, I guess you both, you know, this took interest for different reasons, right? Like you could see it from two different perspectives. Yep. How did you, how did the two of you ultimately decide to go into business together? Um, we both saw that there was an opportunity um, to help create a new industry in Australia from my perspective, that was super exciting because it's an opportunity to change the capital markets, change how equity capital is done. And um, that's what we're doing. So it's, it's you know, it's a really exciting kind of realisation of, um, of that goal. Um, and I think from Alan's perspective, you know, reward crowdfunding uh, was something that Possible helped pioneer in Australia. And um, that was... I suppose, you know, the, the, the first iteration of uh, people power supporting projects and, you know, backing ideas that they wanted to see flourish. I think the tension that exists between reward crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding is um, that, you know, you, you still try to convince people to back what is, an, you know, an early stage risky um, prospect. But if it succeeds, um you know, people that own a stake in the business clearly get a share of the upside, but for reward crowdfunding, um, it kind of taps out at you, you know, getting the thing that you've, you've purchased. Um, and, you know, th th there's a live example of this um, that highlights this tension. Um, Oculus, you know, the maker of these VR headsets, um, I think it was Kickstarter, it was either Kickstarter or Indiegogo that, you know, they launched... Uh, their, their, their product on and I think they had a funding goal of about 200,000 US dollars, they raised $2 million um, and uh, you know from people that had pre-purchased these VR headsets uh, within 12 months Oculus was acquired by Facebook now Meta um, at a $2 billion valuation um, but people were still waiting on their headsets to be delivered from their crowdfunding campaign so um, and, and a lot of them are very rightly upset that, you know, here they were, they'd found a business that they liked, they backed them by, you know, um, pre-purchasing these headsets. Now, had they been uh, investors, um, that would have been, you know, a really nice exit in a short period of time for, for them. But um, as I said, you know, many of them were still waiting for the headsets when, uh, when Facebook acquired them. So, it highlights that tension that exists between between the two models. If if you want a share of the upside, um, then you know equity is the way to go. And because of that, the amounts that can be raised through equity crowdfunding uh, tend to be far greater than um, than you know what companies can raise through or crowdfunding. So just so I've got this correct, Matt. So basically, there are two examples here. One is if you say like I've got a pair of Oculus, I've got a set here. I don't know where they are, <laughs> but they're here somewhere, and they're amazing. They're incredible. Um, and so in that instance, I could say the founders, like the founders get up on, I don't know, let's say in those early days, I don't know what they do. Let's say they got up on a Facebook or 
live stream and they said, hey guys, like we're, we're working on this thing. Here's a prototype. If you pre-purchase now, we're going to take that money and we're going to use it to put these goggles into production. So that's one model, right? And then the other model is, hey guys, we've got these goggles and we wouldn't put them into production. Um, but do you want to invest in our company? And you actually own part of it. So those are kind of like, just to clear for, for listeners and viewers, that's the, that's the two different models. Yeah, exactly. The former is reward crowdfunding and the latter is equity crowdfunding. Okay. So that kind of solves it from like a, I guess that kind of, that's a perfect illustration of what you guys do because you're saying like that solves the problem for the businesses because they need money to grow. And from the investor's perspective, it makes sense that if you were supporting them, obviously like just like the stock market, right? Like if you buy a share of Telstra, you are an owner. So you're entitled to some dividends if dividends are paid and if it grows and so on and so forth. So this is like a major constraint for a lot of businesses, right? Um, a lot of businesses in the early days, Matt, uh, you know, we all start somewhere. So some businesses go to like the family, friends and the faithful, sometimes called the family, friends and the fools. Um, and then there's, you know, different stages of that cycle of a business where they need funding. Where, so, you know, for I'll give you an, a real life example. So when I, when I started Rask, um, I funded a lot of it myself, almost my wife and I almost entirely. Um, like I said, that we had money that we could have used for a house deposit and, and so on and so forth. Um, I actually went into detail about this in the first episode of the series, but you know, then after about, I think it would have been like 12 months, I, I approached a select group of investors around about five of them. And I said, Hey, do you want to invest in the company? Um, and these were just for my personal networks, right? Like I was like, Hey guys, do you want to invest in this company? Um, a bunch of them said yes, um, which I was grateful for. And you know, this is, you could have probably imagined this was very early days. I think we may have even been about like getting revenue in the door. I don't even know if we had, a, we wouldn't have had a meaningful amount of revenue. Right. And so for me, um, it really only was possible because I knew these people and these people trusted me. I remember the biggest shareholder said to me, as he was signing the check, Matt, this is no joke. He said to me, I don't know how you got to this valuation, but I trust you. And he, he signed the check and gave it to me. Right. Um, and I was very, very grateful, obviously super grateful, but a lot of people don't have that sort of a network. So we have to find other ways to get money in the door. Can you maybe talk us through um, the different options for businesses? And then we'll talk about um, where virtual kind of sits, like your ideal company. Yeah. Um, delighted to. Uh, like what you've described is um is pretty common. It's a pretty common description of historically uh, the, the journey for um, founders before crowdfunding. Um, so you needed to have a network of people that you could communicate with directly. Um, you, uh, you know, we, we, we see many companies that have maxed out credit cards put the family home, you know, um, up or kind of, you know, drawn money down on their, on their mortgage to, to fund their business. Um, but you can't go out to the public and, you know, um, raise money from people that you don't know. Uh, and it's pretty hard. Like it's, it's you know, only your, your close network. And as you say, not everyone has a network of people that have money and, and that are minded to invest in, um, in businesses. So there's essentially two game changers of the crowdsource funding regime. Um, proprietary limited companies, so private companies um, that were historically limited to not having any more than 50 shareholders, 
uh, can now have a potentially unlimited number of shareholders. So usually you would need to convert to a public structure once you got over 50. This was the key change uh, that came in with the crowdfunding legislation because anyone that acquires their shares through a CSF offer, which is what crowd, crowd, equity crowdfunding offers are called in Australia, is excluded for the purpose of that test. So we have proprietary limited companies we've hosted offers for that have quite literally thousands of investors. So it was a major constraint that has been removed. The second is that these offers can be advertised um, in a far more liberal way than I would argue any other offer of securities can, uh, certainly in this country, provided you include a short risk warning. Um, so what that means is uh, there, there is a potential, you know, audience, um, uh, you know, of investors nationally that that uh, can look at these opportunities now. So the question is, you know, how do you how do you get to these people? How do you build an audience in that environment and social media? And, you know, a lot of these kind of new media solutions are critical in that. And that has really informed our focus as a platform is that in this environment when, you know, a national audience of retail investors are available to, um, uh, to target, to uh, uh, invest in your offer, how do we take full advantage of, of these relaxed um, uh, advertising restrictions and these improved conditions for businesses? And it's storytelling. It's storytelling and using new media. And, you know, to answer, I think the last part of your question, that is the business that we are interested in as a platform. It is a business that is interesting and that has a story to tell and that can benefit from having a wide audience of investors. Now, some might say that's B2C um, and absolutely those businesses perform really well with crowdfunding but it's broader than B2C. Uh, we've hosted many offers for businesses that don't have a product or service to an end consumer, but they have a story to tell. And more often than not, um, and pleasingly, um, those stories are purposeful stories. So we're finding that businesses that are seeking to improve the world in some way um, are the ones that are finding particular success with crowdfunding. So Matt, obviously, that's really interesting. So obviously businesses could go down the path. You mentioned before like in the early days, they'd get credit cards. Like I think, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I feel like it was Atlassian that was maxing out credit cards in the early, earliest days. And obviously they went massive from that and they were very fortunate to do that and well done to them. But um, so can you just maybe walk us through the mechanisms of um, like what takes place. So you're obviously at virtual, you're the intermediary. You're the one that facilitates the process of finding and helping us. Say, for example, if I just took my business, I'd come to you and say, hey, Matt, hey, virtual team, can you help me? This is my business. We want to grow, I don't know, let's say, for example, overseas. We don't want to do that, but let's say we did. Uh, and we're going to need, we think we need 250000 or half a million or a million dollars to do that. Um, and then I would say, I think we've got like a really strong base. Like we've got, 100,000 podcast listeners. We've got this, we've got this, we've got this. Obviously, we're very fortunate, very lucky to have that. But um, a lot of businesses would be hoping that you can bring some of that to the table too. So let's say you're interviewing me, Matt, and you're like, okay, I've just come in and said, hey, Matt, I want to do this thing. Um, what are the types of questions that you would want to ask me as a business owner? Like, What would you want to make sure that I've got, you know, in terms of ducks in a row to make that a success? Yeah, so... An audience is um, super helpful um, 
but I mean, the, the, the size of your audience really kind of informs how big uh, we expect the campaign can be. So um, like not every campaign, I mean, look, the biggest campaign that we've hosted was $5 million for Zero Co. And this was oh, yes. I saw that. Yep. O- October, 2021. Um, and, but you know, not every deal is of that size. Like the, we do, you know, many smaller type deals of a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, and we're, we're delighted to host all of them. Like when we designed the platform, it was important that we built a platform that could accommodate, you know, not just big deals, but small deals as well. And we built our, our organization in such a way that can support that. So um, because, you know, we're determined to make equity capital available to as many businesses as possible um, and doing it efficiently and cost effectively. So um, an understanding of your audience, I think, is key because, you know, the size of the audience informs how big the campaign will be. Um, you, you touched on Birchall's audience and um, that's pretty common. Like lots of people want to know well, how big is Birchall's audience and, and what do you bring to the table? Um We've got a big audience. I think it's about 180,000 members on our platform. Mm. Um, but we will never sit here and say that our audience is ready to perform for your campaign um, yep. because we don't know. Uh, and in many ways, we feel this is how early stage capital has been done historically and not with great results or outcomes for companies because the, the old model has been for you know, a corporate advisor or the like to cultivate a list of investors and then charge companies for access to that list. Um, and that in an environment where we can advertise to everyone, the, the list doesn't matter anymore. Where we put all of our effort is working with a company to figure out what is the natural audience for this offer and how do we show your opportunity to them efficiently and cost effectively. And Again, with storytelling, it's making sure that the messaging um, is right. So every campaign needs to prepare a campaign video. And a campaign can run nine to 12 weeks. It's broken up into three phases, you know, a few weeks of preparation, an expression of interest campaign that will run for two to three weeks, and then the offer itself, which will, will also run for two to three weeks. But when you think about it, we're trying to move people, you know, from a position of, you know, either having some awareness of your company or maybe not knowing your company at all to a point of investing in your business in a really short period of time. So um, there are a few, you know, tactics that, that we use to kind of build that trust and demonstrate the authenticity and the personality of the founders um, over this short period. And, you know, having run all of our offers to the same process, um, it, you know, it generally works. But it's a slow reveal of information. So, you know, we want to get people interested with the company at a high level. Um, we, we don't want to give them all of the information at the start because, you know, we find people self-disqualify. They'll kind of see things that, you know, I know everything that I need to know about this company. This opportunity is not for me. You need multiple touch points over the course of the campaign to build trust with the investors that, that are going to support you. Um, and there's also a lot of crowd psychology in it too. So, you know, um, like all capital raising, you know, the tools that we have available to execute a successful campaign is momentum and scarcity. So it is critical to have really good, um, you know, 
plans to launch strong, get some early traction, demonstrate that you've got social proof for the offer, um, and then scarcity. So having a maximum target that people are focused on, um, you know, that will kind of inspire them to, you know, to act, to take action and invest. Um, and our process is designed to give companies as much data um, through that EOI process as possible so they can make the right decisions in structuring, uh, structuring their offer. Yeah, I noticed something that's really interesting on the platform is that companies can pay like a pretty small fee, what I would describe as a pretty small fee. And you guys will basically say, put this stuff together and let's go and test the water. Let's see how, how it works. And then from there, we'll decide if it's worth pushing ahead. Um, so I guess there's so many questions around this map, but one of the questions that I have is how does, like, how does what you're doing compare to, say, venture capital, where it seems like venture capital is only accessible to you know, select few? Is that... Would that be a fair characterization of the difference? Yeah, look, I mean, um, it, it's always hard to kind of comment on an industry that, like, you're not a part of, I suppose. So, like, you know, sure. we're, we're, not, we're not VCs, um, but, you know, we, we, know, um, uh, we know a bit about them. We kind of operate in the same space. And, you know, obviously I've got kind of lots of contacts that operate in that world. Um, I think the thing with uh, BC funds is they have a specific business model that kind of, you know, uh, sits behind the decisions that they make and the, and the kinds of businesses that they're interested in. And I think the absence of other compelling solutions for early stage businesses in a capital sense has meant that um, most early stage businesses feel that VC funds are the only answer uh, for them. So it becomes quite an aspirational, you know, ideal for someone to be, for a founder to be venture backed. Um, and then, you know, only to find that the addressable market that they're going after or the opportunity is not big enough. Um, and then to kind of internalize that feedback is, oh, I, I'm not good enough. And um, it says more about, you know, the VCs and their constraints and what they're looking for than it does about the business. There's lots of great businesses out there that aren't going to, you know, go for 100x, you know, 1,000x return, um, mm. but they will still be great businesses. And I think that's the key is that, um, yes, there are absolutely some of those businesses that we've hosted on virtual and they've chosen to raise with us because they see that, you know, having a community of engaged supporters is critical to their success. So they've chosen... Um, you know, equity crowdfunding as, as part of um, uh, their strategy to achieve that. But then there are lots of other businesses that, you know, perhaps don't have a high risk, you know, the same risk profile that a typical high growth startup would, um, but they don't have that high return profile either. That doesn't mean that they're not a great business and they should get funded if they need it. Um, uh, so that's probably, I think, the, you know, the difference between us like we are a platform that provides opportunity for founders to tell their story and find their audience um and i think you know vcs will typically look for a, a, a subsection of these businesses that kind of fit the return profile that they need for their funds um and once they find those businesses they're going to be super helpful and with advice on how those companies can execute their plans and be successful um no, not one is not necessarily better or worse than the other. Um, they're just different types of capital. And certainly I think what we do in VC 
coexists and there's been a few examples of VCs investing before and then a company coming to crowdfunding, VCs investing alongside retail investors in a uh, CSF offer and, you know, most recently a VC leading a round of a company that had previously raised on um, on virtual. So it's uh, everyone has their role to play. Okay. I, I like that um, because I, I too tend to believe that, Matt, like that there are so many businesses that aren't, they're not out here saying we're going to take over, take on the world. They're just here to say, you know, we're going to, we've got this one site and we want to expand it to two sites and we'll, we'll probably see where we go from there. Like we're not promising blue sky potential. Um, is there any kind of way to get a sense? So there'll be a lot of people listening and watching this, listening to and watching this that are very early stage in their, their, their journey and um, they're thinking well I don't know if I'm big enough to go to virtual um, how would they get a sense of what's when it's okay to come to you guys it's it's never too early to engage with us you know the um, I mean some of the businesses that are on the platform right now we've been in discussions with over several years um, right so it's um, uh, you know, there are certain things that companies need to have in place before they start that expression of interest process um, because you want to set yourself up for, uh, for success. Um, and also, if people have um, a high capital need, there are certain things that you're going to need in place um, to give yourself the best chance of that. Um, but we spend a lot of time and commit a lot of resources as a business to educating uh, people and educating founders about the process. And, you know, if, um, if people are just kind of thinking about, about this or they think it might be, uh, you know, for them in the future, but not necessarily now, um, you know, they should absolutely reach out and, and um, make some time to speak with a campaign manager and understand because it is an education piece um, and mm. can be a steep learning curve. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty intense period of work. So, uh, you know, understanding as much of you, as much as you can, um, if you have time to kind of you know get up to speed on what we do and how we go about it, uh, I think it's to anyone's advantage. Um, to answer your question specifically, though, we've hosted a lot of uh, offers. I think about thirty percent last year were for pre-revenue businesses. Um, so you know, there's lots of businesses that you know equity crowdfunding is kind of part of their launch strategy or it's at the earliest stage. Um, obviously, what you expect you can raise um, will be will be lower the earlier that you're on. Uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that we're able to host offers for, you know, companies at a broad spectrum of uh, stages of development. Um, so obviously the one key thing is that people should have a company structure. So if you're a sole trader or something like that, you might want to think about that from a, that perspective. Um, but then in terms of like, say com- businesses out there that don't have proper shareholders agreements and those types of things yet, do you coach them through that? Or do you say, go speak to a lawyer before you come to us? Like how does that engagement process work? Um. It, I mean, it, it depends. So some companies come to us and they've already got a lawyer, an accountant that they work with, and that, that's fine. Like we, um, uh, we also have a, a lot of uh, lawyers and accountants that have done 
a lot of work for businesses that have been through a crowdfunding process, so have developed a lot of expertise and insight. Mm. Um, we obviously can't, as the intermediary, can't give companies legal advice, um, but we can be really helpful in terms of the guidance that we can provide, but also the guidance that we can provide their advisors that they choose to retain them. Because it's not overly complicated work, it's just new and um, it's important work. So, you know, having a lawyer help you through, uh, um, you know, this process of revisiting your governance arrangements before you do a crowdfunding offer is really critical. And particularly because many proprietary limited companies that are going through crowdfunding, um, you know, the, the law is not as prescriptive as it is for public companies. So you've got a lot of latitude as to what you can put in your constitution and how you choose to, to structure your affairs. Um, so cho choices need to be made and it's important to have someone, you know, to walk you through that and explain the consequences of the choices that you're making. Um, and just to, you know, put something specific around that, like what's developed as uh, the standard practice now is rather than companies having, proprietary limited companies having a shareholders agreement and a constitution, which has been pretty common for early mm. stage businesses as a structure, um, companies will, if they have a shareholders deed in place, terminate that and then update their constitution so they've got a single document so they start to look a little bit more like public companies, but still a little bit different. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, th that is a far more efficient way of, of governing your affairs. And the reason for this is um, all of your incoming CSF shareholders will have fully paid ordinary shares, which have voting rights. So, you know, often companies need to think about how they're going to to manage that in terms of going to shareholders for approval and, and what will I go to shareholders uh, for approval for? So getting these things right before you make a crowdfunding offer is, is really important. Um, and we're here to offer a lot of help and guidance, but we can't give the advice if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And that's what the experts are for. Um, just conscious of time, Matt, I, I feel like there's so much we could talk about, but um uh, by the way, that's how I set up my business, right? I had the separate agreement and, and whatever. I think one of the things that founders should be aware of, and, and not just founders, um, but also just small business owners, that's how you consider yourself, is what's the um, implications if I do go down this path of getting the money? So I'd imagine there has to be some way to, like you guys, maybe support this and help. Obviously, they have the people have to be registered for their shares, the owners, the investors. Um, <clears throat> Then, for example, I'd have to communicate if I was the, the person in charge, like the CEO or founder, I'd have to communicate with those shareholders on a regular basis. And then obviously, of course, they're investors and shareholders. So um, you'd have to treat them with respect and understand that you do have interested parties in the business. So I guess that's something that, that people that go down this path should be aware of too, rather than having you know, maybe one or just a group, small group of shareholders. Now, maybe there's thousands. And so they don't want to have infrastructure in place for that as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, we, we actually went through this process ourselves um, earlier this year. So uh, we, yeah, we used our own platform to, uh, to raise money, um, uh, <laughs> which seems really obvious and intuitive, but um, it was actually pretty, pretty involved because, you know, there's some inherent conflicts um, of providing a financial service to yourself. So uh, <laughs> those needed to be managed pretty carefully, but we, but we did it. And um so we have 600 shareholders now and um, oh, wow. 
yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of power and learning, I suppose, in using your own service because um, you know we're far more. Empath- I think we're already empathetic, but we're far more empathetic for what um, what our customers go through now. Um, but yeah, a few things change when you have CSF investors. Um, if you're a proprietary limited company, uh, you need to prepare an annual report. Um, and this is your financial statements, um, which need to be prepared in accordance with the accounting standards. And there's been some changes to the accounting standards to improve, you know, transparency and consistency in financial reporting, which, uh, you know, is, is a bit of a learning curve for businesses um, and a director's report. So that needs to be lodged within four months of the end of the financial year. Um, uh, so that's something that wouldn't apply to you before, and that's a change by virtue of having CSF shareholders. I, I don't think that that's a very onerous requirement, though. Like, um, we feel that companies really Good. should be engaging with their audience more yeah. than that. Um, and, look, choosing a cadence um, and sticking to it is, is you know, personal matter for a company. We report quarterly, um, so I'm putting the finishing touches on our you know, Q1 FY23 uh, report, which will go out to shareholders. But, you know, you get out what you put in. Um, We're releasing a new product shortly. We needed to find a name for it. We asked our shareholders to name this new product. Um, A lot of really positive feedback came from our last shareholder update. Um, And, you know, you're building a community. And that's what we say to companies is that, um, it's not just about the capital. It's about building an army of supporters or inviting people onto your team to help you achieve uh, what you want to achieve. And um, that's certainly been consistent with, um, you know, the experience of many of the founders that we've helped and, uh, and, and same with us. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, a new way of raising capital. Yeah. Uh, just in closing, I just want to mention a few things, Matt. That's great. Um, I guess, real life experience. One, if you're an investor and you're thinking about a platform for crowdfunding, there are some, there are risks and you should read the risk warnings. Uh, Virtual does a very good job. I noticed Matt, it's in your email signature even. Um, read the risk warnings because these are small early stage companies. So, um, you know, we're, we're not out here saying that you should go out and invest everything you have in one of these businesses. No way. Um, we're saying, just look at it uh, intellectually. It's quite interesting, both from the investor side and also from um, the company side. Uh, number two is that as a small business owner myself, Matt, I find so I find it so helpful to write letters to my shareholders. I used to do it every month, and that was a bit taxing for me. But just like having the introspection, a lot of businesses spend a lot of a lot of people spend a lot of time in their business, but not on their business, so they don't spend a lot of time looking over it and seeing how things are performing. Um, and the third thing is, I don't know, Matt, if you've ever heard this, the story of the, 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 like the ketchup and sauce brand that was built, um, I think it was in New York. Um, basically, what they did is this small group of founders, they, they wanted to bring, because like, obviously it's dominated by Heinz and all these different brands. And so like, no, everyone was like, there's no way you can make a new sauce brand, right? Like, it's just not possible. So what they did is they thought, well, we can do it better. And what we're going to do is we're just going to invite everyone over, all of our friends, every Friday night. And we're going to come up with five different recipes for sauce or ketchup. And they did this over a series of months and they got all of their friends to vote on it and tell us what they like. Now, obviously, they got some great sauces out of this. So they've picked some really good flavors. And the, what they found on, in reflection was not that they come up with the best sauce. It was that they, their, their customers, who later turned into shareholders, actually turned out to be the biggest ambassadors for the brand. 
And so they were going around the supermarkets and delis and saying, hey, where's this sauce? Why don't you have this sauce on the shelf? Like, I love this sauce. And it kind of created this push and pull mentality amongst distributors. And um, I love that. Like, I think what, you, what you're doing is you're eating, you are literally eating your own cooking there um, by saying this is how it works. So um, I'll have links in the show notes, Matt, for anyone that's, that's uh, interested. Um, I know there's a few different pages for companies, for investors and so on and so forth. Since so many interesting businesses go through the platform over the last little while. So um, you've definitely got one reader in me and one um, interested observer. But um, yeah, I think that's probably the best place to send people, right? If you are, a, whether you're an investor or a business owner, the website is the place to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what I'd say, you know, to people that are thinking about um, investing in early stage businesses, whether it's, it's through crowdsource funding or otherwise, um, you know, as an asset class, early stage businesses are, are being offered to retail investors at scale for the first time. And um, it is getting, you know, cheaper than it ever has been to get exposure to this asset class. And um, that supports diversification, right? So mm. anything um, that, you know, any of your strategies for any other asset classes really kind of, you know, um, apply here. Um, diversification within the asset class and then across asset classes. And I really think um, as a nation of investors, we've, you know, historically been pretty lazy kind of favouring, you know, blue chip stocks and property and um, early stage businesses is a way that, you know, you can look for superior returns o- over the longer term, but, um, but also kind of invest in um, building a new economy and diversifying ourselves away from, the things that we've traditionally been focused on. So um, it's, uh, you know, achievable through um, crowdsource funding platforms. Obviously, read all of the offer documents and get advice if you feel that you need it. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, more accessible than it ever has been and, and long may it continue. Yeah, mate. There's um, millions of, s- of small businesses in Australia and you said you've, you know, 160 plus. Um I think like your business itself has a long way to go. So um, that's exciting too. So mate, I, I really appreciate you taking some time out to join me on the show and um, I'll let you get back to business. I know Mondays are busy times for, for business owners. Uh, so I appreciate your time, mate. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC Education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the Rask website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.